Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Well, Ed, I've just been really busy because, you know, I've been hoovering and setting up the guest bedroom because, mm-hmm. you know, when you've heard that football's coming home, mm. and, uh, even though I am, of course, in Scotland and consider myself uh, a British mongrel who is more on the side of Scotland than anything else, I'm always going to be hoping that Marxism wins. <laughs> I'm making sure that the cocoa's on the boil for all the good boys. Um, at the time of recording, uh, it is a couple of hours before the Euros final, so it is quite literally all to play for. But uh, yeah, tense times, but I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm not looking forward to the 55 years worth of laundry that football will be bringing back with it. Uh, it's going to be a lot of bin bags and, you know, it's going to be working round the clock to get that all done. Bain remover at the ready. <laughs> so many grass stains. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I, I too have very mixed feelings about this whole thing. As an expat who left England, I um, I have complex feelings about my country of origin uh, and complex feelings about the football team, which uh, I think I summed up on Twitter with a meme that they kind of like panicked, someone trying to press two buttons meme, where one said, uh, wanting the England team to win because they seem sound and never wanting someone who would willingly describe themselves as an England fan to know a moment's happiness. <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of the dichotomy to me. Like, you know, my whole life has been overshadowed by, you know, every four, well, every two years. Every two years, there'll be a major tournament where England, you know, everyone gets excited and then nothing comes of it. And then, you know, the world, the last World Cup and then the Euros, we did pretty well. And, you know, the team, like you say, the, the team all seemed like lovely uh, cuddly Marxists. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, they do seem like genuinely very nice people. Like, you know, everyone always talks about the England team being like heroes or whatever, but like Marcus Rashford actually like genuinely seems like a truly like decent person who does genuine good for the community and the world. And it's hard not to root for him or Raheem Sterling and just like the arc of Gareth Southgate from... Oh missing that penalty in 1996 and being like just like a laughing stock to the extent that he did that really funny pizza Hut advert where he went in with a bag over his head to now like being the manager like looking over this young team I don't think any of whom were alive when he made that miss and when all of that fervor was like really breaking like it's hard not to root for him and wanting like the absolute fairy tale ending to that to that saga for him regardless of like my otherwise feelings about like how like jingoistic and how nationalistic and how much English football is kind of like woven into right-wing fervor in the in the UK like on a on a personal level I cannot help but want good things for that team and for Gareth Southgate oh yeah it's this team it's all about my sweet unicorn inflatable riding boys 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all for it. So we'll go on to the rest of the news this week, which obviously pales in comparison. But oh. uh, there was there's some things that we should talk about. Um, since we last recorded, the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark uh, debuted, the Sopranos prequel uh, written by David Chase, who created the show, and uh, directed by Alan Taylor, who directed many of the episodes of The Sopranos, set in at least two time periods, one in 1967 and one in 1971, uh, with kind of like a, a big cast of, of various people playing uh, characters that we know, such as uh, James Gandolfini's son playing uh, Tony Soprano as a young man. Uh, oh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> um, Amiga? Yep, Vera Famiga as as Livia Soprano in uh, a top-notch bit of casting and uh, makeup work to kind of make her see, look simultaneously like Livia and Melfi and <laughs> Carmela all at once, uh, really underscoring so much of the Oedipal themes of the original series. Corey Stoll as Uncle June, John Bernthal, like it's got loads of just like great people like filling in these details of this kind of like great show. And I think that the trailer, I think, was fine. I think I, I kind of chime with some of the people who, who like think that it looks a little drab and like honestly doesn't look as good as the show did in terms of its composition and, and its color grading. But uh, I have been looking forward to this for like, I don't know, three or four years at this point, I think, since it was first announced. It's hard not to get a little excited about returning to like that milieu and seeing what David Chase has to say about the world that kind of formed the characters as we would come to know them in the in the Sopranos and also I have I kind of give a little leeway on the trailer maybe feeling a little conventional because knowing that yeah that's all being done by Warner Media that's not necessarily uh indicative of what the film will be like it's more just kind of like Warner Bros executives being like yeah how do we really accentuate the brand on this one I dropped fucking everything when (laughs) you sent me the link to this trailer and my immediate response before watching it was oh my god and then my response after watching it was maron because I (laughs) understood this was the correct reaction I think that's a really good point that you say about the trailer that it does feel conventional. I think I was so stoked about the casting, including Alessandro Nivola as the not yet seen Dicky Montesanti. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Which, and I think it's also, you know, the characters that we've always heard about in The Sopranos and who cast a long shadow, but to actually see them and and their influence. I think you make a really good point about it seeming quite conventional. And I think it's a huge gear change for David Chase and speaking of personal narratives that he sort of himself looked down on television a bit Mm. and it was kind of a last resort and that we've had this possible series long coming from him that doesn't seem to be it's just been in sort of like pre-production hell for a really long time and then that one film he did that was a little bit like music in the 60s I can't remember the name of it but uh, not fade away yes that's the one which I never actually saw but I just feel like you know he he's sort of changing gear and being like oh well maybe this is what I actually am great at doing and and I do have stories these people still live in my head and they're still 
worthwhile spending time with. And I think it's difficult because how do you really create a trailer for a for something for a TV show and then that shift and but I, I was just so emotional seeing Gandolfini's son, really, because that was one of the first things you and I said was how eerie the the movements and the the mannerisms were mm. and what it must be like to step into that. Um, because I don't think he'd ever actually watched The Sopranos because he was too young. And I think it came a little, I think it came to doing this role where he actually watched it. And I wonder what, what that's like um, for him. But it looks already like a powerhouse performance. I'm so excited seeing him and Alessandro Nivola um, riff off each other. And I just think it just looks like such an impeccable cast. And I trust David Chase for the writing to back it up because I don't think he would do this if he didn't if he didn't think that he could write it well. Yeah. Or, or, or get people together to write it well. I'm interested to see what the arc is because the trailer doesn't reveal too much. It's not it's not appealing to anyone who doesn't already know The Sopranos, you know. Mm. But it'll be interesting to see what the actual kind of ins and outs of the of the plot are and whether we discover anything new like I'm trying I'm trying to think about what my uh my desired end goal experience is you know but more than anything I'm just kind of happy to see everyone again I love Vera Farmiga as Livia I think that makes total sense basically going to be her or Kristen Wiig wasn't it so. <laughs> yeah it's a shame Nancy Marchand's not around so they couldn't do the later seasons of Arrested Development thing where <laughs> Just get old, get her back in, but uh, wearing a very uh, unconvincing wig. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go on to the next story and a story around the production of a film called They Are Us, which is from Andrew Nichol, who you know wrote The Truman Show and directed and wrote a variety of films like Gattaca and just supremely underwhelming films since Gattaca. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, I, people like Laura War, but I don't know. But like, he's he's never been someone who transcended like the one-two punch of Gattaca and the Truman Show to me. And uh, but you know, he's working on this film called They Are Us, which is about the Christchurch uh, shooting where a gunman went into a mosque and and killed uh, a lot of people and live streamed it. And it's just like really just like horrible tragedy. And because it's horrible tragedy, of course, someone has to try and make a movie about it. Um, that's the way it works. And um, there's been a lot of controversy about it because uh, on the one hand, you know, it's it's kind of cast uh, Rose Byrne as Jacinta Ardern and Jacinta Ardern has come out and said that she wants nothing to do with it and she doesn't think that uh, it should be made. And a leaked version of the script went online and uh, people had considerable objections to the ways in which the shooting itself was described. And it may have sounded like it would be very traumatic for people who um, survived it or lost people in it to have to be forced to relive it in, in this sensationalized way. And on the one hand, I think like, you know, people should be able to make movies about terrible events that happened so that people can like, you know, maybe learn something about them, particularly in a situation like this, where you're dealing with this kind of like radicalized white supremacist movement that is global and orchestrated online and radicalizing people online. Uh, while at the other hand thinking that, you know, this is probably not the best way to do it based on, you know, what people are saying about this early version of the script and just the sheer number of ways that this could go wrong. 
I mean, I want to echo exactly what you say there, Ed. Like some of the most powerful cinematic experiences I've had are graphic, but I think there's something incredibly different between something that is done sensitively and with the permission of people who have been affected by it in a graphic way and mm. then just something that's like deeply exploitative. And I think also it's like whose hands it's in because I think it was a New Zealand-based producer, Philippa Campbell, who resigned, I think, in about June. So, you know, and, and we'll never know people's motivations, but she at least was savvy enough to think this isn't the right thing to do and publicly step back from the project, citing the very valid criticism of why this was happening. And I think if you don't have everyone on board who is involved, you know, it's, I think it's, because it's just so soon and people mm. are still grieving. And if you're not going to get Jacinda Ardern on board, and I just don't really see what the point of it is. Because if it's that graphic, and it's worse than the live streams, I guess, because there is a sense of we don't need to repeat this. Yeah. And I think you you look at things that also, you know, fictional accounts based on horrendous things. So I think Vox Lux is a really interesting example. Mm, yeah. So Brady Corbett's second film, I was not a fan of his first. I actually really like Vox Lux. I think it's a, a really, it's a film of two halves. It is a before and an after. It is a really interesting character portrait. I think Natalie Portman does a really stunning job. Um, and it's the best that she's been since Black Swan. Admittedly, I haven't seen Jackie, but also this is just a bit more interesting, a bit less Oscar bait, let's be honest. But the way that the school shooting is handled, which is entirely fictional, but of course, sadly, there are too many real events to draw from. It is, is handled incredibly well and with tension, but also crucially respect. Mm. And I think, you know, if you have to replicate something exploitatively, there is no artistry in that. There is no respect in that. And I also think of the recent Danish TV show, The Investigation, which is all about the, based on the, um, the true story of Kim Wall, the journalist who was murdered mm. um, by the entrepreneur on his submarine. And the investigation solely follows the, the investigation, the team. We do not see the murderer. We do see... Kim's parents, that it's just focused on them trying to do their job and to get a, a, a water, you know, a, 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 like a tight case together in order to, to get justice. And it's handled with such, I think tenderness is the right word. Mm. I, I just think, interesting thing about this is that the script has been leaked, you know, and I don't think that happens as an accident. I think there is someone on that production who is like, probably in a position where they're not able to speak out publicly, but what they can do is kind of pass something along anonymously and try and get it shut down. Because I think it's, it sounds to me like the worst kind of um, clickbait rubbernecking. Mm. And of course, Rose Byrne, who I think is a really talented actress. I loved her in um, This Is America with Gloria Steinem. It's not to say that she's not got chops and can really brilliantly bring you know public figures to life in 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 sort of 
in her performances but I just I what what is the what is the end goal with this Ed and I, I just think it's far too soon mm. yeah it, it reminds me a little bit of and this probably would have been more controversial if the movie hadn't just like landed on Netflix and no one watched it but um Paul Greengrass did that movie about the Anders Breivik shootings um yeah. called I believe called just July 22nd which like debuted on Netflix and wasn't particularly well reviewed and, and I think generally the turnaround it was that it did feel quite exploited to, to take this story of real people being killed and you know trying to dramatize it in the way that he did and there is a way to do that sensitively um funnily enough you know like one of the first things I thought of with this was the movie Out of the Blue which was um a movie from 2006 starring Carl Urban which was about another like mass shooting in New Zealand that occurred in the early 90s which is a really good movie that I think handles the terror that people felt uh, of this guy who went on a shooting spree in a small town and the efforts of the, the police to kind of track him down and stop him and it handles it in a way that feels very like humane and also manages to be you know kind of like tense because obviously you know like it's a manhunt obviously it's going to be tense but not exploitative so there is a way to kind of like handle this material but I think there's obviously a difference in scale between a guy with a rifle going around kill, killing people at random and then another man you know decades later walking into a place of worship with a you know a, a, an automatic weapon and you know kind of like killing people indiscriminately because of their religion and race and, and also in terms of to talk even more about the storied subgenre of mass shooting cinema Gus Van Sant's Elephant mm. um a movie that I've only seen once and have just got like burnt into my mind ever since because it was so impactful on me that's a movie that I think really understood like how to tackle an event like this which is to treat it very humanely fictionalize it lightly obviously it's not directly about Columbine um and to make it far more about the victims you know the whole idea behind elephant is it follows quite literally because it's got that kind of like long takes that the um bellatar-esque long takes where he's following people through the the halls of the school as they go about their lives and very much kind of like centers them in the story he doesn't really make it about the killers all that much except to kind of like you know show brief glimpses of them and then the shooting itself which you know it is shocking but because you've spent you know, an hour or so with the people who are going to die and you kind of feel a connection to them. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure Andrew Nichol is the sort of person who would necessarily be able to handle that sort of delicate balancing act with the, the, the deft touch that it would require. Oh, again, I mean, even with everything that we've just said, the man made Simone or Simone. <laughs> I, I mean, no, please. I mean, if it's going to be made, hand it over to someone else and just fucking take a breath and wait like mm. wait until you get some sort of permission from the people who are most affected by it and that's certainly not coming in this way so yeah i'm a i'm a hard note on this one mm -hmm. and our final bit of news for this week was the news that robert downey senior passed away of course iconoclastic and brilliant american filmmaker plus actor who died at the age of 85 who is i mean to of most people he's obviously most famous because of who his son is but um who aside from that 
directed some incredible movies. Um, the the current, the probably the most famous and the best, at least of the ones that I've seen, would be Putney Swope. His kind of like incredible um, satire of corporate culture before people really understood what corporate culture was, and just like a, a, an incredible visionary who really kind of took every element of American society to task in his work, and who also was you know a very fun actor whenever he would show up in other people's movies. Um, I always enjoy him in his brief appearance in Boogie Nights, where he plays the producer who uh, works on the song that Mark Wahlberg and, and John C. Riley uh, record their, their version of uh, The Touch. And yeah, just like a brilliant cinematic mind and, you know, a real force in American independent cinema who will be uh, much missed but who leaves behind like a really incredible body of work. And a fantastic innings. Mm. So we'll go on to the main topic for this week. It's another show and tell episode where we talk about a piece of culture that we've seen recently and want to kind of discuss. Emily, what have you got to, to show us this week? What I am bringing to show and tell you about, Ed, and our wider audience is the feature writing and directorial debut of Billy Piper, Rare Beasts. Mm which has finally come out online, video on demand, when I think it had its premiere in 2019, quite late on in 2019, I think it was scheduled for 2020 release. And when I heard that this film was in the works, I was incredibly excited because I am a Billy Piper fan and I'm more than happy to, <laughs> to say that I am. I think she's ridiculously talented and a very interesting just just person like mm. it, she, she's lived several lives uh right now but starting like being in the public eye from about 13 i think and that now she seems to be at the point where she has the power off the back of her like barnstorming performance as yerma where she won i think all six leading theatre awards for best actor playing a lady role and on the podcast about how much I love I Hate Susie and what a stunning collaboration that is and I think in some ways I'd also say like just from personal taste I think I prefer I Hate Susie and I think that Lucy Preble and Billy Piper is just like a stunning combination and their collaboration is really fertile in terms of what it brings. Because I Hate Susie manages to sort of talk about so many things through this one character. And there are echoes that are similar, so like in terms of biographical details in Rare Beasts, you know, a single mother, um, a child with some kind of disability or behavioral problems, um, like a slightly difficult home life, both kind of the one that they came from and the one that they're going into but they're still distinctly different and I think what really struck me about Rare Beasts and what I kind of loved about it is that it's not what I expected at all mm. it's been billed as an anti-rom-com but I think that does it a disservice because I think it's so much more like it reminded me so much more of something like Certified Copy or some of Almodovar's work or Leos Karak almost operatic dissection of heterosexual relationships and family dynamics and 
Billy Piper plays Mandy, who is a single mum with her young son, Larch, who has behavioural problems. And the film basically follows her very odd romance with a guy who says he's religious, but has maybe a few shades of Lawrence Fox in him in terms of this sort of like slightly weird neoconservatism. And also that she's career focused, but seems to be getting nowhere. But it's this like incredibly vivid. It's like, of course, it's a rare beast in itself. It's like a bird of paradise. Visually, it was so striking. And Billy Piper's partner, Johnny Lloyd, did the music. And you do feel that kind of really sumptuous experience. I kind of wish I could have seen it in the cinema because it is this combination of the old sound and vision. And I just love the way that Billy Piper sees her vision, you know? It's remarkable that so many of the characters are deeply unlikable. Mm. Um, and there were points where I was like, I'm not sure I can actually bear to spend more time with these characters, but there was always something that was kind of pulling me back in. And I think that's part of it because at no point is this seen as an aspirational story. There is something incredibly human and flawed and almost grotesque about it. Like everything's almost like on a commedia dell'arte level of like people sort of grimacing as they're smiling and it's tipping into um, clowning almost. And there are all these big set pieces where it almost borders on people like almost burst into song, but their pattern of dialogue is really strange and you know, it's really, the dial is turned all the way up, but it's really nice to see some some original maximalist British cinema because I don't think we've seen that for a little while. Um, so it was refreshing on that point. And then there's just some absolutely stunning performances like um, Leo Bill has her um, love interest. It is compelling and gets across why she's drawn to this like seemingly like horrible and really hurt man because he does seem to cut through a lot of the bullshit of the world that they that they exist in um and the scene with her friends where they're just drinking and, and doing coke and worried about you know their children is also like simultaneously hilarious and and, and heartbreaking and then kerry fox and david thewlis play her parents what more do you want? <laughs> um, and I think for, for all of its high sort of concept and, and, and passion and uh, almost magical realismness of it, there is this kind of like sort of deep, dirty kind of pulse to it. Because I think unfortunately it's probably going to get comparisons with Fleabag because if you're a woman in Britain making anything now you know you'll just get comparisons to Fleabag which I don't think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is particularly keen on either mm, mm. um but the thing that I found so refreshing about it is I think Mandy doesn't start off as a doormat like in in no at no point is she kind of too meek or um it's not like her sort of like gradually finding herself it's almost like her sort of being tested and finding herself again it's just for something that is really bold and big 
it's simultaneously very subtle. And I found that interplay really interesting. I still think it's massively flawed, but I haven't enjoyed a film and been surprised by a film as much as this in a really long time. Um, and I can't wait to see what she does next. Because I think as much as she sort of mentioned that she found it quite hard to direct herself, I think it would be really exciting to see her work with actors and maybe her stay solely behind the camera because she has such a vivid and visceral cinematic style. So it is available on video on demand, at least in the UK. I'm not sure how it is in the US. Um, but yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's something quite special. Hmm. Yeah, I just yeah. had a quick look to see if uh, it was available to rent and it doesn't look like it is at the moment, uh, at least over here. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that one because uh, like you, I'm a fan of, of Billy Piper and I think watching her career basically from the start of it has been so fascinating because obviously she was like a pop star in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Um, and, but then like pretty much immediately after that, you know, she was in, I remember very vividly her being in a BBC miniseries where they did six adaptations of um a can of the canterbury tales uh where she played a character in an adaptation of the miller's tale with james nesbitt and that just like being a really striking choice for her it was like pretty much one of her first acting roles and to be in this like modernized take on you know one of the foundational english texts and then go from that to doctor who and diary of a cool girl and all the, that sort of stuff that she's done over the course of her career. She's always struck me as someone who really seems excited in challenging herself and who is really willing to kind of like go out there and try new and exciting and scary things. And the fact that she has kind of reached a point in her career because of, you know, she's had obviously huge populist success with uh, Doctor Who, which, you know, kind of gets you a certain amount of leeway. And as you said, you know, she's had huge success on stage. Uh, it's really exciting that she's got into a position where she can try new and different and bolder things, even than what she's done previously. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see Rare Beasts and to see if she continues on this, this path uh, and, and what she does uh, in her career. So Ed, what do you have for me this week? So uh, what I have for show and tell this week is one of my most anticipated pop culture events of the year, the second season of Netflix's I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, which uh, you and I and uh, Matt at the time uh, <laughs> talked about the first season when it aired a little bit and were, but were all kind of like uh, massively enthused with it. You know, like it's really funny, really absurd, strange sketch show that kind of came out of nowhere and then in the subsequent two years or three years since that first season aired it feels as if the footprint of that show has only grown more as various memes from it have just kind of become part of the popular lexicon certainly um within the 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 online circles in which i traffic you know i rarely does a day go by that i don't see someone posting the the guy who the guy who says, uh, "Oh my God, he admit it," or the 
guy in the uh, Tim Robinson in the hot dog suit saying uh, we need to find out who did this. Um, it's, it's a show that kind of like came out of nowhere, as I said, and then has just like really become a touchstone, I think, for a lot of fans of wildly absurd and strange and super funny comedy. So uh, the, the news that a second season was coming, um, which I think was confirmed like earlier this year, uh, obviously was very, very exciting to me. And I was very excited to finally sit down and watch it. And even with all of the hype, I really do feel as if season two totally delivers. I think it is has the same kind of like absurd, awkward feeling that the first season had for, for people who are unfamiliar. Tim Robinson is a, a sketch comedian and writer and actor who was briefly on Saturday Night Live. He wrote for Saturday Night Live and he was a featured player for, I think, a single season um, and had one really, really funny sketch called Z-Shirts, uh, which he did on the episode that Kevin Hart uh, hosted on his episode where they just keep saying, is it an A shirt? No. Is it a B shirt? No. Is it a C shirt? Over and over. And it's just this like incredibly long, awkward, strange sketch where they're very, they're just going through the letter of the alphabet. And then even weirder for SNL having a sequel sketch that later in the same episode where they finally go, is it a Z shirt? Yes. Uh, just like an incredibly strange guy with a weird sensibility, which is also in display on his show Detroiters, which he did with um, the incredibly funny uh, Sam Richardson, with whom he's kind of collaborated a fair bit over the years. And he's just like a very, a guy who has like an incredibly absurd sense of humor, but, uh, and who really seems to like pushing things to a point of awkwardness that would seem to be unbearable. And that's kind of like the ethos of, I think you should leave is like, they're all sketches built around really strange, awkward ideas, then just go to places that are like totally bizarre. And in uh, this season, uh, I think it does that like incredibly well in big and small ways. Um, the standout sketch for me, at least um, so far, like, I've only watched it once. So like maybe on subsequent viewings, other sketches will rise to the top. Is a sketch called Coffin Drop, where oh yeah, <laughs> I'm aware of Coffin Drop. <laughs> yeah, where he plays a a guy who is is I guess a producer of a show called Coffin Drop where they film funerals and splice together footage of when the bodies fall out of the coffins. And it's just him like giving some sort of like in an infomercial talking to camera and trying to convince people to write into Spectrum to tell them not to drop the network that Coffin Drop is on. And it's just this incredibly, incredibly weird idea that is kind of like pushed to this extreme where he's getting more and more animated and trying to defend his creative decisions on making a show called Coffin Drop and then cutting in images of various funerals where the bottoms of coffins just break and bodies sprawl out and roll down hills and all this sort of stuff. It's just an incredibly weird sketch that just gets funnier and funnier the longer it goes. Uh, there's also a sketch which has already become... Uh, a, sub a subject for many tweets where uh, Tim Robinson plays a guy driving a car who doesn't know how to drive and who kind of like leans his head out the window and says, I don't understand what any of this stuff is and it fucking, I'm fucking scared, uh, which is just uh, a, a phrase of, of a million uses. And I just, what I really like about this season is not only does it have like these like, just like bombastic uh, tone that's like, just like really huge and really pushes things to, extremes as I say uh, 
there's also like an undercurrent of sadness to it that at some point is almost unbearable <laughs> in some of the sketches. There's a sketch where Tim Robinson is playing a guy on what I guess is meant to be a prank show where he's going to go into a mall under all of this makeup to make him seem like another person. And then the prank is that he's going to go and flip someone's ta- uh, tray over at the, uh, at the canteen, um, at the food court, at the food court. And the sketch starts at a ridiculous place, which is when you see the makeup and he looks like a, a homunculus. Like he doesn't look like a human at all. And he's like walking through the center of this mall and he just is like layered with makeup and just doesn't look human at all. And then when it comes time for him to film the sketch, he just starts talking into his mic where he's sort of talking about how he can't see anything and it's weighing him down. He's going to tear his face off. And then it just reaches a point where he says, I don't even want to be around anymore. And then his producer like starts talking him down from this point of like suicidal ideation to try and get him to like reconfigure what the sketch is going to be. And there are just those little moments dotted throughout the the season where there are these just like real moments of like despair and darkness that uh, I found to be really affecting in a way that I wasn't expecting from the show. Obviously I was expecting it to be like super duper funny and absurd and strange, but I wasn't quite expecting it to have this like real darkness and bits of like human uh, connection to it. Uh, which I, I thought it handled really, really well. And I think uh, maybe indicates that Tim Robinson, if he gets to make a third and a fourth, you know, how uh, presumably that'll be it because Netflix doesn't commission shows past like four seasons for the most part. Like maybe he has kind of like bolder ambitions and each, each season will kind of become more emotionally complicated as they go along. Uh, but even if this is it and he's only able to make these two, I really feel like this is a incredibly wonderful and distinctive little body of work that he is that he has put together. I've only watched the first episode of this second series. I'm looking forward to delving in more. I think the first one blew my mind with how just it's a really different sensibility and it remind it felt like oh america has its limmy show right yeah yeah because for me it's that same combination of something that is absurd and like you know genuinely side-splittingly funny but there's this undercurrent of something incredibly sinister all the way through and mm. not so much the same way as like uh tim and eric awesome show great job which is really dialing up the kind of dadaist like they're the sort of um, Vic and Bob, I feel, of America, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think Tim Robinson, the first series was so strong precisely because I think a lot of it was like rejected SNL sketches that he'd been sitting on for years. Yeah. So interesting that he's actually had like, a, you know, essentially much less time to turn around this next series. And I also recommend if no one's seen his episode of The Characters, I think it's called, where Netflix mm. did like, of like 20 minute pilots for various people um i really recommend that because there is a bit where he is a uh, sort of crooner in las vegas doing really badly at, at the slot machines at the you know in uh, gambling which just oh god just absolutely slays me and that sadness i think is something that pathos is something that um is missing a lot in sort of american comedy because it manages to not be mean mm. because a lot, of, a lot of american comedy is either you know you're kind of greg daniels uh 
Michael Shaw sort of, um, oh, we're a family at work and we're all different, but we all sort of love each other. Or it is like the most unbridled, violent, angry, edgy sort of stuff. It's nice to find someone like Tim Robinson in the middle mm, or, yeah. or doing his own thing, which is, you know, which is just a bit absurd, but people who, people who are just being in the world differently without mm. being freaks, because everyone's still a little bit, and, and, you know, sometimes the protagonist in the sketch is actually the antagonist, like thinking back to season one and thinking of none other than Tim Heidecker. Yeah. He's the weird, older jazz obsessed boyfriend <laughs> whose standards are too high and obscure for absolutely anyone um and I think the sketch that I've seen in the first episode of the second season that really kind of hooked me in because it felt a little bit overplayed for me in terms of the buff boy I was like <laughs> this, is, this is the who will win the baby of the year but not as good mm-hmm. um, but it was the ghost tour sketch that really got me yeah there's so much there's so much empathy and so many different points there where you know there's the guy who who tim robinson plays who just wants to swear because it's the adult tour and he just wants to say whatever he wants to say but not in an aggressive alt-righty free speech way just in a this is actually how he sort of formulates his thoughts and opinions and then the tour guide who's really exasperated and is like please don't do this because i'm just i'm just trying to earn my living and you're making it really hard for me and then being picked up by his mum at the end. I mean, it's just such a sort of exercise in like sorrow, but yet there's not quite sort of pity. I feel like he's always asking you to be like, he, he, he just sort of spins the power dynamic in sketches constantly. And I, and, and as someone who's sort of like tried to, uh, tried to do the old comedy, all comedy is about power in some way, shape or form. And that he has such a different angle on power dynamics, I think is really refreshing. Mm. Yeah, there's a really good, you just mentioning Tim Heidecker there reminded me that he he appears in an episode in the second season as well. And there I think it's quite funny playing with expectations where in the first season he is so memorably just like terrible. And in the sketch that he has here, like, you think that's the way it's going and then it goes off in like a completely different uh direction and ends up being about this like really weird interaction that he ends up having with someone who works at a restaurant and yeah i I think you're totally right in in the fact that what's really great about so many of the really best the best sketches that um tim robinson does is that sense of shifting power dynamics and why yeah the buff boy sketches i think it doesn't quite it definitely doesn't live up to baby of the year although i did laugh really loudly the first time that sam Richman walks on and just starts screaming buff boys I oh think, i mean that's just that's just funny no yeah. two about it um but like the, the ones that are especially good is where there is that dynamic of power where there's like an aggressor and someone who's being aggressed against and then the sketch kind of makes you wonder who it is you're meant to be sympathizing with here yeah, not to get too intellectual about a sketch show that is so kind of like willfully not intellectualized and is is so gleefully absurd. But I do think like that's kind of like the engine that powers a lot of Tim Robinson's comedy and what makes it consistently very interesting and why something like, you know, the, the no good car ideas sketch in the first season is so 
is so good and like is such a highlight of that season because it is totally about this one old man who's completely derailing this one meeting and who initially seems like the person you're meant to be against and as it goes along you're like yeah they really don't have any good car ideas <laughs> just kind of like come to his point of view it's so wildly memeable mm. and i don't think i've seen something as quotable all right i'm gonna say it like it, it's monty python levels of like you can just say a weird sentence and people will just fall about laughing and i think there's no one committing quite as much as tim robinson and his cast yeah thing that they do and like some of them are just so like I keep thinking back to the first season with the aliens who are like bikers and like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah yeah I'm totally on board with this and then Connor O'Malley being as fucking weird as he likes is like the honk of he's horny and yeah I just I think it's exactly it's wild to think that we saw the first season just before the pandemic and now we're, we're getting the second season mid pandemic and how sorely needed that kind of deep belly laugh is because I don't think it's like obscure or exclusive comedy in any way like it's, no. it's very inclusive in that Tim Robinson is always the first to make himself seem like the idiot which I think is really helpful and it is from what I can tell, only from the first season, a reasonably diverse cast. And I don't know, they just seem like they're having a blast. And I hope that me uttering those words doesn't mean that there's suddenly a spinning headline and <laughs> how awful everyone felt and was treated. But I don't know, I think, I think the anarchic and puckish nature of his style of comedy, I mean, not to go into another sort of, massive tailspin about SNL but you can tell how he was sort of wasted there and that he's mm. finally chance to shine yeah there was a I think it was an interview with Sam Richardson talking about you know one of the various projects that he has coming out this summer where he talked about getting late night phone calls from Tim Robinson where Tim Robinson was like really doubting himself on SNL like wondering if comedy was really for him and Sam Richardson saying like, you know, this is a guy, like the most confident guy I know in comedy, the guy who knows exactly what he wants to do, just like completely doubting himself. And that I think was like the fullest sense of like, oh yeah, Tim Robinson really was not suited to the way in which SNL works and just like something about that process maybe isn't conducive to producing uh, consistently good comedy, even when you have someone who uh, demonstrates in subsequent years, oh yeah, he's like maybe one of the best people when it comes to making sketch comedy that you could hope to work for or with. Uh, and yeah, before we um, finish this uh, segment, I'd just like to say that there was a really good article last year by Kath Barbaduro, who's a stand-up and who co-hosts the What A Time To Be Alive podcast. Uh, essential listening uh, for anyone who wants to have a good time laughing at weird news stories. Um, about the first season of I Think You Should Leave and arguing that it was the best comedy uh, for the Trump era that was not about the Trump era, that it was so absurd and the images from it could be used for, could be decontextualized and used to kind of like 
you know, point out how hypocritical someone like Mitch McConnell is, for example, because it wasn't trying to comment on the era in which we live. It just reflected it through how absurd everything felt and like the sheer joy of non-topical absurd comedy that still works as a prism for the world in which we live. And I feel as if season two like steers into that idea just as much, if not harder. Um, so yes, yeah, so I would recommend, I'll try and find a link to it and put it in the show notes, but that was a really good article for, I wanna say Vulture uh, by Kath Barbadura, uh, which I think really gets to one of the things that I really like about, I think you should leave as a, as a broader kind of work, but also in terms of explaining why it has become so kind of like eminently memeable and why it feels like one of the very few Netflix projects that actually has had some sort of staying power. So we'll go on to the final segment of our show, which is Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I have to apologise uh, as a disclaimer before I go into uh, recommending it, because I'm not sure whether it's going to be available in the same way that I just watched it in the UK. But I finally, finally got around to seeing Cecil be demented, John Waters' uh, 2000 film. Um on Mubi, and I think I basically got to see it because Mubi said, that thing you put on your watch list, we've not got for very long. And I went, oh, I should probably watch that. Thank you, Mubi, for reminding me and keeping me right. Um, but just if you haven't seen it, and I don't know how I managed to go this long without seeing it, because I honestly think it's John Waters' uh, magnum opus, because it manages to just stick in so much of his sort of concerns and as a kind of meta comment on two extremes of filmmaking, like Hollywood and independent. And it's it's just so fun and high camp and this kind of like dialectic between the two and there's no heroes and villains. It's just kind of letting it all play out and the tensions between them. Melanie Griffiths is great. I want to see Stephen Dorff because he's not around very much. Um, Adrian Grenier, when he was like a big deal, one of Maggie Gyllenhaal's first sort of major roles, I think. The artist Harry Dodge as well. Um, yeah, I just really, really enjoyed it. And I think if you want something that sort of is like loving of movies and filmmaking, but also self-aware enough to be like, we're all twats. Like <laughs> you can't really get better than Cecil B. Demented because I think all of the movies about movies that we've seen particularly the past 10-15 years just very self-congratulatory and I think there's something about Cecil B. Demented that I found so refreshing and that it is and I use the academic term here batshit that <laughs> is quite so enjoyable it's basically like okay well we're all doing something completely ridiculous and in different flavours um, and just the, you know the bits about Baltimore and I yeah I just think it's um it made me miss filmmaking which I did not think was possible <laughs> so that's Cecil Be Demented by John Waters. Cool I'm going to recommend a new movie from Steven Soderbergh he really does kind of knock him out a feral clip these days uh the movie No Sudden Move which debuted on HBO Max last week and 
Uh, I thought was absolutely terrific. Uh, it's a heist movie of sorts, starring Don Cheadle as a kind of criminal who's just got out of prison, tired to do a job where he has to go and hold the family of a man who works for like a large uh, investment, like some sort of large like bank investment company hostage, uh, whilst he the, the man goes off to retrieve a document. He is brought into it alongside uh, Benicio del Toro as another kind of criminal involved in the scheme and uh, Kieran Culkin. Um, oh, we didn't mention that Succession's coming back. Succession's coming back, yay. But, um, I'm so excited. Yeah, uh, that's for another episode. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, Kieran Culkin. And initially it seems like a fairly straightforward thing. They just have to hold this family prisoner. But as the film goes along, you discover that there's more going on in the background. And um, it's like just a real crisp clockwork um, bit of genre filmmaking. The script's by uh, Ed Solomon, who uh, kind of is really good at this sort of like really densely plotted but you know easy to follow uh, crime thriller it's got a great cast uh including uh, as, I, as i mentioned the, the three uh robbers uh, in addition to cheadle uh del, uh del toro and um mm. colkin you also have uh david harbour as the man who they're kind of like holding hostage uh amy simatz is his wife you've got uh bill duke in a supporting role which is great uh, some other Soderbergh favourites cropping up, uh, but who I won't spoil because it's fun when they show up. Um, yeah, it's just like really impeccably cast. Got this great jazz kind of like, uh, it's got this great kind of like laid back feeling to it where the one point is at the same time that it's kind of like tense and rigorous, it does feel like a bunch of incredibly good professionals just hanging out and doing their job to the best of their abilities. And there's just something like so appealing about that that you know Soderbergh can knock out a movie of this quality, uh, you know, whenever he wants. And yeah, I was just I was just really really taken with it. I think it's really terrific. Uh, as I said, it's on HBO Max over here in the US, and I think in a handful of theaters, but mainly it's an HBO Max thing. And hopefully, it'll be available for more people to see soon because I think it is just like a real top-notch uh, bit of, of fun from Steven Soderbergh. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the user places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.